0: Um, Well, as Rafe mentioned, my name is Noah Chung, and I am the pastor resident at Bridgeport with Kenson over there, and I'm excited to share the word of God with you today. Uh, Today, we will be spending a majority of our time in Judges 7. Uh, If you have your house Bibles, there are Bibles in the back over there as well if you need one. We're on page 206, and I'll be spending the majority of time on Judges 7, 1 through 18. You know, if if you've been with us for a few weeks now, Uh, you know we've been going through the book of Judges and have titled this series, When God is Not King. And you know, and behind me on the screen, you'll see, and as well in the intro video, you see the structure or the cycle of the entire book of Judges, which outlines this vicious cycle of Israel disobeying God, then being enslaved by others, and then God finally hearing their cries, and then God calling a judge to deliver them. You know, last week, Rafe Uh, taught us how Gideon was a fearful and timid man from the lowest of clans of Israel. But then God graciously chose him to save Israel, to deliver Israel from the hands of the Midianites, which were Israel's enemies. And so as we enter chapter 7, we'll see how this deliverance takes place. But before I start, uh, let me pray one more time. God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, as we uh, dive into this rich uh, story, this narrative that you have um, just displayed your work in, God, I pray that you may speak a word to us. You may speak a word to me. God, that as your word speaks, we know that um, in good soil that it will produce much, much fruit. And that is our prayer for today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, for the past few days, I have been getting up at seven in the morning to watch the World Cup, which is the biggest football, well, we Americans like to call it soccer tournament in the world. It gathers people from all over the world, young and old, poor and rich, to watch their teams and their favorite players compete all over the world for a chance to be the best in the world. Well, unless you are the United States, which sadly did not qualify this year for the World Cup. You know, but what I love about the World Cup is the likelihood that upsets are always possible. In soccer, one deflection, one penalty, one mistake, one goal can change the trajectory of the entire game. You know, last Sunday, Germany, the the world champions from 2014 and the heavy favorites to win again this year, faced off against Mexico. You know, they were predict- Mexico was predicted as a 16.7% chance to win that game. They were the heavy underdogs. No one expected them to win, let alone score a goal for that game. But all of that changed in the 35th minute, with uh, Irving Lozano scored a goal from the top of the box, sending Mexicans all over the world celebrating and shouting with praise. You know, some even say that it was so loud that in Mexico City, an artificial earthquake was kind of taking place right there in that city. You know, so with 55 minutes left, would that be enough to deliver Mexico a victory? Germany, with its star-studded squad, took control of the game. They took 26 shots on goal, had the ball for over two-thirds of the time, and had over eight corner kicks to try to score a goal. But time after time, they couldn't come up with one single goal. Even though Germany had more World Cup titles, more premiered players, and were the favorites to win, Mexico beat one of the world's best, and Irving Lozano delivered Mexico to victory. You know, don't we all love to see heroes deliver their teams to victory? We love to see heroes like Harry Potter deliver the wizard world from Lord Voldemort. We love to see Peter Pan deliver Neverland from Captain Hook. And uh, Kensington, our Bridgeport pastor's favorite, we even love to see Jack deliver Rose from the icy water in the Titanic. (laughs) We love to watch and hear these deliverance or rescue type stories because all of us are wanting to be delivered from something too. You know, we might want deliverance from a difficult job situation or a difficult job search. You know, we might want deliverance from unknown futures, our plans, our worries. You know, we might even want deliverance from loneliness or some sort of pain we've been continually going through. Church, what do you long to be delivered from? What do you long to be delivered from? You know, as we look in the second part of Gideon, we see Gideon and his men wanting to be delivered from the oppressive hands of Midian. And in our test, we see how God delivers Israel. And as a model for us today, I want to pose three steps God uses to deliver Gideon from the Midianites. But I also believe that he uses those same steps to deliver us from what we need today. So the three steps, just to kind of outline our time, is first, God delivers us through stripping away our security blankets. Second, God delivers us through reminding us of his promises. And third, God delivers us through our worship. So first, God delivers us through stripping away our security blankets. You know, if we go to verse 2 of the text, let me just read the first. First, uh, verse 2 for us today. The, the people with you are too many, the Lord said to Gideon, to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You know, remember Gideon has now gathered about 32,000 men to prepare for the battle against the Midianites. But before strategizing their next move, God already senses that there are too many men with Gideon. God knew that if somehow Gideon and the 32,000 men would defeat the Midianites that they would be easily tempted to believe that they were the reason for that victory. They could credit their awesome planning, their weaponry, their military skills or even just their own human strength. God knew their hearts. So what does he do? In verse 3, he begins to tell this begins to tell them to get rid of everyone who was fearful or trembling which ended up being about two-thirds of that entire army, and only 10,000 of the 32,000 remain. And at this point, I'm pretty sure Gideon is thinking, you know, God, this doesn't really make much sense, but, you know, we still have 10,000 men here, so I I think we're still good. But God's not done yet. He tells Gideon in verse 4, the people are still too many. And so he tells them, to take them to the stream so that they can get some water. And apparently the men go to the stream and they drink in two different kinds of ways. One group, they, they drink by kneeling on the ground and taking the water and cupping it and bringing it into their hands. And the other group, they kind of get down on all fours and lap the water like dogs. And you see a picture behind me that kind of give an uh, illustration behind it. And so 300 do it one way, and the other 9,700 do it another way. You know, at first reading, and even in a lot of my traditional like Sunday school learning, I always thought the ones who knelt and cupped their hands were the 300, and they were doing that because they were on guard just in case someone would attack them, while the 9,700 were those who lapped like dogs kind of like fools. But kind of dig- digging more into some commentaries, they actually say that, the language shows that the 300 were actually those that lapped like dogs, and the rest of the others cupped the water into their hands. Why is this significant? Let me explain. What was the first group sent away from doing? In the previous verses, God says that those who were fearful and trembling were sent away. So in the second test, why would the majority of the Israelites cup their hands and bring water to the mouths, kind of always looking around. As my basketball would always say in practice, they would always keep their head on a swivel. Well, it's because they were afraid too. You know, remember the Midianites, Israel's enemies, were only a mile or two away from them. If you see in the picture behind me, Israel is at this place called the Spring of Herod, and the mass of the Midian armies are in the other across the valley, basically in sight of the Israel while they're drinking water. So these men, when they're drinking these water, carefully looking around them, they're scared. They're afraid just in case that the Midianites might come and attack them. So God tells Gideon in verse 7 that with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and I will give the Midianites into your hands. What is God doing here? Two things. First, God was slowly stripping away Gideon's security blanket of a mighty army force by commanding him to get rid of over 99% of his entire army and send them back home. God did not want Israel or Gideon to think that they could save themselves. And then second, though Gideon thought he needed his security blankets of human strength, What God shows Gideon was that these men were afraid anyway. How could God use fearful men? So God, being wise, chose the 300 men who were fearless rather than the 32,000 who would be fearful. You know, one of the amazing things uh, about living in Chicago is the diversity of food that we are surrounded by. You know, I can get a deep dish pizza down the street. I can get Chinese, awesome Chinese food in Chinatown right down here. I can get amazing tacos, and there is so many options that I can choose from. I love food. Okay, the the best parts of the days are breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, but one thing about loving food so much is what some people call being hangry. Okay, being hangry if is just a simple equation of hungry plus angry equals hangry. And that describes me a lot of times when I'm hungry. You know, whenever I'm hangry though, the desire to eat quality food kind of gets thrown out the window, and what I want is quantity of food. And it always turns to me getting more and more, and in that case, more always equals better. So what do I do? I overeat. I buy way too much at the grocery store, I eat unhealthy food, and I even run over other people just to get my food. You know, I can definitely tell you that me being hungry does not produce very good results at a buffet. But if we, if we look back a little bit from this uh, simple illustration, a little bit back from food, what else in our life do we commonly associate as more equals better? Or in other words, what do we constantly want to add to our lives rather than subtract? You know, if not food, maybe it's adding more degrees or work experiences to your resume. Maybe it's adding more resources or materials for your comfort and your security. Or maybe it's adding more pictures to Facebook and Instagram so you can get more likes and hearts. Even if we look at the American church... Sadly, we also think that more equals better. More money in our budget, more programs, more space, more well-panned strategies, and on and on it goes. Nothing is inherently wrong with abundance, but what happens if having more or constantly wanting what's better becomes our goal and our end? Doesn't scripture actually speak to us about how our lives are about denying oneself, about giving up our possessions, about letting go of our preferences, fasting food, and even dying? You know, in Hebrews 1 through two, we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. You know, in order for God to deliver us and use us for his work, in most cases, God needs to strip something from us rather than adding something to us. Perhaps it's a certain fear that you have deep inside you, a certain sin that's eating away at your soul, or maybe it's just a natural self sufficient attitude that God needs to get rid of you. What is God wanting to strip away from you that you are holding on to ever so tightly? For God, More does not equal better. Instead, just like when you go to a grocery store and you want to buy a piece of fruit, we don't want a piece of fruit plus high fructose corn syrup, plus MSG, plus pesticide, plus any other additive. We just want that piece of fruit. In the same way, God doesn't want all of our accomplishments, all of our skills, all of our possessions, or any other additive to us. God just wants us. And so for us, when we are stripped away from all those things, then God can use us. He can mold us. He can form us for his purposes. You know, that's why God took away the 31,700 fearful soldiers away from Gideon, because 300 fearless soldiers was all that God needed to do his work. God is in the business of purifying us like pure gold. So that we won't fall back to our false security blankets, but fall on God as our one and only security blanket. So second, God doesn't just strip us of things. He also delivers us through reminding us of his promises. You know, let's go back to the text. Uh, Gideon has just sent all the other men home, and now 300 are left with Gideon. So look at verse 12 and uh, verse 12 with me here. And we, we see that as the army is sent away, there is this other army in front of them. And in verse 12 it says, And the Midianites and the Amicalites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were throughout number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. You know, we actually find out later in chapter 8 that Midian had about 135,000 soldiers just in that valley. That is about 450 times more men than Gideon had at that time. So if I was Gideon, or if you were Gideon, like any normal human being, you will be scared out of your mind. So in the middle of the night, God knew this. He visits Gideon, and he tells them, go down into the camp of the Midianites at night when they're sleeping, for I have a word for you there. So Gideon, just probably unable to sleep, probably just can't get around how he's going to win this battle, he gets up and he takes every just trembling step to that camp with one guy by his side. And then as he stumbles to the camp in verse 13 and 14, we hear this. It reads, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Verse 14. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joaz, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. You know, in Scripture, Dreams are a special way for God to actually speak to his people. We can think of Joseph interpreting dreams for Pharaoh or the prophet Daniel interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar back uh, in the later chapters of the Bible. So Gideon overhearing this dream, it was no accident. In the dream, the cake of barley bread represented the insignificant and poor farming community of Israel, while the tent represented Midian, the nomadic nature of israel's enemies so when the cake something so small tumbles and strikes a giant tent gideon knows that the only interpretation can be that god has surely given them victory this was god's final reminder and the final assurance that gideon needs for his fear to be completely erased and for him to go into battle church what fears are blocking your view on God's promises? Or how are your fears controlling the way you live rather than letting God's promises dictate your life? Could that Midianite fear of yours be not having that control you need over your life? Could that Midianite fear be losing a sense of security or comfort? Or could that Midianite fear be, be the feeling that I'm not getting loved enough, or I'm not acknowledged by my peers or those around me. What are you afraid of? You know, take for example this simple game of peekaboo. For us adults, we know that if I place my hands in front of my face and I say peekaboo, you know that my face is still behind my hands, correct? Okay, correct, right? Okay. Uh, but for a baby, you know that when you play peekaboo, and place your hands in front of them, psychologists say they actually believe that, that your face actually disappears behind your hands. They literally believe that your face is gone and because they can't conceptualize at that age this, this idea of object permanence. So they think that when you play peek they think it's magic. But only through a repetition of time And experience babies start to learn that your face actually doesn't disappear but remains just behind your hands over time they trust and they know that your face will be there at the end of the game you know in the same way many of us are no different than those babies our fears are constantly blocking God's promises from what we need to be seeing And we we believe that when fears block God's promises, we believe that God's promises have disappeared. But once we grow, once we grow over time, we realize that no matter what kind of fear or obstacle is in front of us, we know that God's promises always remain behind there. They always remain present and they always remain true. You know, many of us need to stop being overcome by these fears in front of us. Many of us need to start looking down and be reminded in God's word. Like Gideon, we need to be reminded daily on God's promises. Church, did you know that there are over 3,000 promises that God gives to us in his word? Let me just read a few of them for you today. For those who are tired and weary today, Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For those in this room who feel unloved today, Romans 8 says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. For those who are in need, Philippians 4 says, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And lastly, for those who are mistreated or oppressed or facing injustice, Psalm 146 says, God executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. No matter what you are going through, God's promises remain in his word to encourage you, to build you up and remind you that he alone will deliver you from any difficulty, hardship, oppression, or sin on this earth. Church, when, not if, God prunes you of your comforts and security blankets. He also promises that all authority in heaven and on earth is with him and that he is with you throughout the end of the age. So even when it hurts, even when you feel like the fear is overwhelming you, God's promises remain true. Amen? Amen. Amen. You know, thirdly, God delivers us through our worship. If you go back to, or if you look at verse 15 now, you know, as soon as Gideon hears this dream and and God's promise for him and his army, what's the first thing we see? He worships. We find that at the the second line of verse 15. Gideon worships. All fear, all worry, all self-sufficiency that Gideon has originally is thrown out and Gideon gets up, worships, and goes out, To fight the battle, he wakes up his 300 men, but instead of strategizing a plan, you see this list of commands he gives to his soldiers. Gideon gets his troops, he tells them exactly what to do. They divide up into three camps, and he tells them to only take a trumpet in one hand and an empty jar with a torch in the other. Notice that he doesn't take a single weapon to battle. Then in verse 17, Gideon tells his men to look at him and copy every single. One of his moves, with no hesitation, no fear, these three hundred fearless men follow Gideon, though they are outnumbered and outmatched for this battle. Then, as we see, I don't have time to get through the rest of chapter seven and chapter eight. We see Gideon take, go around the entire camp of Midian, surround the camp, and then the Midian. The, when they, they blow their trumpets, they shout aloud, and the Midianites they wake up confused and frightened and scared. And God, by his sovereignty, actually turns each man against themselves. And they end up killing each other in this entire battle, Gideon and his men not really doing anything. And in that battle alone, 120,000 men would fall that day, while Gideon and his men did not use a single sword. By God's power, he delivered Gideon and his soldiers from the Midianites, who are pressing Israel for over seven years. Church, we cannot miss this last point. In order for God to deliver us, we must respond with worship through our obedience. Let's get, a little, let's get a little bit practical here. First, I want to give a definition to you. Biblical worship is the full response of head, heart, and hands to who God is and what he has done. You know, today the concept of worship is commonly mistaken as just gathering on Sunday like this or just singing songs. Not wrong, that's part of worship, but worship is so much more than that. Worship is an outward expression that points to God for our entire life. It includes acts of mercy and justice. It includes loving our neighbor and the foreigner. It includes honoring God with our work, treating the earth well, abstaining from sin, and even sharing our faith to others in this city. It includes everything. But to get a little deeper, I want to focus on one aspect of worship that often gets neglected today, and that's obedience. You know, after Gideon worships, we don't see him saying, wow, what a great dream. What an awesome dream. Thanks, God. I'm going to go home now and take and rest and be in my little home. We don't see Gideon doing that. That would be ridiculous. Instead, Gideon, when he worships, he knows that he has a mission to do. He goes out in faithful obedience to take 300 men against the 135,000 men to do God's task. You know, imagine if you were in an eight-hour CPR class, and on your way back home on the train, someone starts choking on a cracker. Would you just simply watch from your seat and let that man or woman choke on their cracker? Or imagine this, you're in a game, and your coach gathers you together in a huddle. With 30 seconds left in the game, he gives you the final play. He pumps you up, gets you all excited. But afterwards, instead of going to the game, you just go back and sit on the sidelines you know church so many of us are stuck are unable to be delivered from our various circumstances because we fail to carry out our worship outside these four walls we expect god to deliver us but we ourselves are not faithfully obeying god in his word and fearlessly living out the truth of the gospel in the entirety of our lives church can i challenge you with something today What is one worshipful act you can do in obedience this week? What is one worshipful act you can do in obedience this week? Who can you love more? Where can you share with others? What can you abstain from? How can you make Jesus more known today outside these walls? I promise you that God will use your obedience to deliver you from your circumstances, but that he will also use you to deliver others from their potential hardships and circumstances as well. You know, now after Gideon has won this victory, we may think now that Israel is celebrating and exciting and that Israel has peace and Gideon is a national hero. But in actuality, if we read the rest of chapter 8 in Judges, the story doesn't end so positively. And that shift happens ironically in the last verse of our text today. In verse 18, we see Gideon telling his men to shout this phrase, for the Lord and for Gideon. Wait, why does he say for the Lord and for Gideon? Isn't it clearly God who is delivering Israel from all their oppression and all their circumstances here? You know, after this victory in chapter 8, we kind of see this downward spiral of Gideon in his life. And it plagues his entire life to his death. And that thing that plagues him is his pride. Just kind of summing up the rest of chapter 8, we see his pride making him impatient with his Israelite brothers, eventually killing his own people over some dispute. In his pursuit of the Midianite kings, his pride then takes vengeance into his own hands, and he beheads the kings without inquiring of the Lord. His pride then takes the spoils, the riches of war, and instead of bringing those riches back to God, he makes an ephod, which in Israel is a good thing, but a foreign ephod is is kind of a religious idol that they would worship during that time, an idol detestable to God. And then in verse 23, his pride says, no, I don't want to be king for Israel, but his false humility basically makes him a false king, because he gains incredible wealth by being this hero, by having over 70 sons and many wives and concubines, which back then equated with many, many, many riches during that time. You know, Dr. Klein, a commentator, he summarizes the second half of Gideon this way. The coward has become confident. He directs far-flung mopping up operations, which are effectively carried out, but the voice of the Lord is stilled, not to be heard for the balance of Gideon's narrative, and the spirit of the Lord, which brought the courage to fight a far greater military force, seems to slip from Gideon's soldier, soldier, shoulders in the process. As we look at Gideon, we definitely see a faithful and obedient man, but at the same time, we see a man who loved and trusted in himself more than trusting in God at the end. And he's not much different than us. Pride, comfort, and other security blankets wrapped up back around Gideon. And as a consequence, at the end of chapter 8, even though Israel had rest for 40 years, they soon forgot the one who delivered them and saved them from their destruction. They ultimately forgot God. You know, as we look throughout the rest of the book of Judges this summer, we'll see time after time God saving Israel But then, time after time, we see every judge failing to deliver deliver Israel completely and failing to get rid of their sin in that time. And throughout the Old Testament, no king, no prophet, no person ever could rescue humanity from their brokenness, their suffering, their sin, and even their death. We needed a better and perfect deliverer. We needed A greater Gideon. So God, being perfect in love and justice, did not raise the judge again. Instead, he sent his only son. His son would not be timid or risk aversive. He would take off his glory in heaven and step into the brokenness, the sickness, and the dead ridden world that we live in. He would live experiencing all the pains of humanity, yet also seeing the beauty and the hope. In humanity. And then God, his father, would call him to invest in a few, 12 to be exact, far from 32,000 or 300. But he still saw how death and sin reigned and oppressed everyone around him, including his 12. And the only way to fully deliver all of humanity, past, present, or future, from the bondage of sin and death, would be to offer his life As a sacrifice on a rugged and horrific cross. His disciples thought he was crazy, but his death would be the only way they would have eternal life. But then death and sin would not have the final word. No, Jesus, our God, by the power of the same Holy Spirit in us, would be raised up and claim victory over all sin, pain, and death, so that whoever believes in Jesus as Lord can be saved and delivered from all sin and all brokenness. Unlike Gideon, Jesus, as God, delivers 100% of the victory and the credit that he defeated death and sin on that cross. And in that victory, there is no need of any older, other judge, no any, any other king or any other deliverer to save us today and forevermore. Church, this is why we are here today. We serve and glorify a greater Gideon. We glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God alone is the one who delivers you, can save you, and can rescue you from whatever you are going through right now. At times, you may be tempted to think that you can save yourself like Gideon, but in reality, only God can save you. Whatever you accomplish on your own, don't give that credit to yourself. God is the one who has done and orchestrated your life to be here right now. It is only by God's grace and God's love can we be here and that God can deliver us today. You know, let me just wrap up with one story as we come to a close, you know. uh, As some of you know, uh, in our Bridgeport location, we have one of our guys named Matt Lern. He used to lead worship uh, at Near South when we were together. Um, He had just won a a cooking competition called The Chew recently. Uh, and And winning that competition, he gets a full scholarship to pursue his dreams to culinary school. You know, for Matt, after forcing all of his friends and families to vote every day on social media for the video competition, he had an opportunity to go to New York City and compete against 20 others for four scholarships. You know, upon arrival, two dishes were chosen to to do and to compete against with others without the competitor's knowledge. The first dish was a French omelet, and the second dish was a stir fry. But what many don't realize about this story was that these would be the two perfect dishes for Matt to compete with. First, Matt has been cooking French omelets for over a year. Because of battling severe intestinal issues with kind of his body, he has been hospitalized and going through many different um, procedures and medications where eating and cooking was near impossible for him. But the doctors, when he could eat, told him that he could only eat eggs and starch throughout that time so for an entire year he made french omelets so he had that one pretty much down the second dish was a stir fry and let me remind you that matt is chinese-american he probably has eaten over several hundred stir fries just in the past decade so of course he knows the flavors he knows the sauces He knows what goes well together and what doesn't go well together. So he ends up creating this shrimp, vegetable, kimchi stir fry that shocks the judges. And with that dish, it propels him to victory. You know, even even though Matt spent weeks beforehand, before this competition, deboning chickens, filleting whole fish, doing all these sorts of things, trying to get prepared for this culinary competition... It was actually the two most familiar dishes that ended up being in the competition that he would have to do. It would actually be the dishes that reminded him of his past sufferings and his past childhood that granted him access to victory. Though Matt had to be there and he had to cook, his victory didn't come along just because of his preparedness. It came through God weaving it through his story. You know, as Christ followers, when we are delivered or given victory over something, it may be easy to attribute that to ourselves, but if we look back in our lives like Matt or like Gideon, many of the victories and the moments of deliverance were not brought upon us, by us. God was the only one who gave us those deliverance moments, and it was done by him alone. So, church, you may be in various steps of this process. You may be, uh, maybe God is stripping away some of your security blankets right now. Maybe God is reminding you of his promises amidst your failures or amidst your fears. Or maybe God wants you to follow through in worship and in obedience. Wherever you are, let's be people at the end of the day that point to Jesus, the one who has ultimately delivered us from everything and anything we can possibly imagine. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for Gideon. Uh, God, we thank you that he shows faithful obedience, but at the same time, God, that he was not perfect, just like us, that Jesus wasn't perfect, and that by his blood and by his sacrifice, we are here today. And so, God, I pray that you may continue to deliver us through things that we need. Remind us more that you alone are our deliverer. In Jesus' name we pray.